Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, before we get the show started, I wanted to let you know we are giving away a bunch of brand new Black Magic gear. Yeah, cameras, switchers, DaVinci Resolve licenses, a bunch of awesome stuff. So stay tuned to learn how you can enter to win free gear from Black Magic, and we're going to tell you all about it later on in this episode. Now, cue the music. Hey, welcome to the 152nd episode of Just Shoot It, a podcast about filmmaking, screenwriting, and directing. This episode was brought to you by patrons Charles Coleman and Kevin O'Brien. I'm Matt Enlow. And I'm Warren Kaplan, and on this episode we have Carrie Gilogli. She is a creative development exec. Yeah, she's a veep. She's a VP of, uh, of development over at AMC. The um, network that brought you such amazing shows as Breaking Bad and Mad Men. And a whole bunch of other great ones. I've known Carrie for a long time. We're pals from college. And so we get to talk a lot about the nature of development. We haven't really gotten into the day-to-day of what they actually do, and more specifically and importantly, and pertinently to you, listener, uh, what they're looking for and how they find the people that they love working with. Yeah, we dive into both how they find writers and new shows and also how they find directors for pilots and for series. But just before we get into that conversation, real quick, I think we should just define what a development person does. Her job is to find shows get them on the air and also to continue with existing shows yeah shepherding them through kind of the whole process you know like they're working with the showrunner the creators the writers you know they're not necessarily in the trenches but they are the liaison between the rest of the tv side of the whole equation they're the people that get shows made yeah advocate for shows and the thing that i love the most about carrie is that more than maybe any other executive i know carrie loves writers she loves working with writers she loves finding them and empowering them and that has always been her dream and she's living it i've known carrie since we were teenagers and she's like day one she was like i'm gonna be a producer so here we are cool what did you say i said i'm gonna be a podcaster you're like uh (laughs) i'm going to a frat party i did not go to a frat party I know. Jeez Louise. I'm trying to paint a picture of you that's totally that's fake on this totally, episode. Yeah. <laughs> Just because you're with a college friend. I think we'll skip our catch up, even though I have some great things to talk about. Ooh, I can't wait to talk to you about it next week. <laughs> <laughs> but before we talk to Carrie, I want to remind people about our Patreon. It's actually been going pretty well. Super great. Yeah. We've seen a lot of steady growth. It's the thing that helps us pay Jay, our editor, and keep our live shows alive and happening. We've been making a lot of small adjustments to the show. Like, we're doing more remote episodes. We're investing in the gear a little bit more. So that's all thanks to the help and support of you, the listeners, providing us with a little bit of patronage. So, you know, if you think it's worthwhile to throw us a buck or two once a month, Patreon is a great way to show your support and... And honestly, most of it goes directly to Jay. So, (laughs) (laughs) yeah. And we are going to have another live event very soon. Very soon. I would love to go to a few film festivals. Oh, yeah. Right? Like other places 
where uh, people who listen to the show could meet with other listeners, basically. Hey, how about this? If you are involved in a film festival and you have a cool panel on directing and you think we should be there, let us know. Our yeah. email is justshootitpod at gmail.com. Yeah. Without further ado, let's talk to Carrie Gologly from AMC. Carrie. Carrie Gologly. Yeah. On the mic. Woo! So you work in development. I do. You're our first development guest. Carrie, you're kicking off development month. You're Great. initiating it. You are at AMC. Yes. You've been there for kind of a while now, right? Almost seven years. Whoa. Yeah. Wow, that's wild. It'll be seven years in July. So when you started... Breaking Bad was still going. It was yeah. kind of like the dawn Mad of Men. new AMC, basically. Yeah, yeah. Breaking Bad and Mad. Yeah, Men. no. Well, Breaking Bad was like ending. It oh, probably had dead. like, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Breaking Bad was had two seasons left. Mad Men had, or had like one and a half seasons left. Uh, Mad Men had two seasons left. Right. But right. so it was like you know a good run in the midst of a good run sure and so that's a great time to. I remember when you got that job. It was like, oh, it's a very cool place to work. Um, like people are very excited about it, and everyone is looking for what the next thing is, basically. Yeah, I mean, I think television is. I mean, this was me switching from features to television sure, to work at AMC, yeah. and I think that TV is interesting because you, in a lot of ways, are looking for something that's unique. Whereas, like a lot of on the feature side, you're looking for something with pre-awareness that's mm-hmm. sort of familiar, mm-hmm. and that's less true now than it was many oh, so. years ago. I think. Oh, I think that the in my time in the television business, the television business has basically become features mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. So, Do you mean in that they also require pre-awareness? In some cases. I mean, I think a brand is meaningful. I think movie stars are meaningful. I think a big idea is meaningful in a way that, that used to not be the, the case as much. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's there. It, that's not, I mean, that's not a, it's not religion. You know, sure. it doesn't have to be that way, but it is happening more and more. Because of the sort of arms race, that's everything. Yeah, yeah that's like that, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just like just like to make as get as many eyeballs and make as many things as you can. I'm gonna pump the brakes immediately, like Great. really early on. You said the term "big idea." People hear "big idea" all the time. What do you mean by "big idea"? Uh, I mean, I think a big idea. It can mean a lot of different things. I think that what I meant it. I meant it in a bit of a pejorative way when I was just <laughs> saying it, but that it doesn't have to be. I mean, I think that like. High concept mm-hmm. is maybe like I think that a hook, like something that feels like I think a big idea could mean to somebody a big concept like it's an operatic space battle, you know, different worlds against each other and all of that. Or it could mean a big idea through like a keyhole perspective, like something like signs mm-hmm. or maybe a big idea that's lo-fi like uh, primer that uh, Shane sure. Carruth. Carruth, yeah. yeah. Um, but so, so when you say lo-fi, you mean that it's ex- the execution is kind of low. Yeah, well, I mean, the budget was super low, and, and the concept it was it's time travel, but it's guys that literally to time travel, they're like in a garage, like locked away for four hours, and then they wake up and it's a week ago. Right. But so is like ex machina or machina, machina, however you pronounce it, is that a what, big idea? Because to me, that's like almost like a small idea executed in a hi-fi way. People use that term to mean a lot of different things. Right. I think it could also just mean like. You hear it and you just have never heard anything like it before. It feels mm-hmm. like like Groundhog Day is a big idea in some ways. Sure, yeah, you know, like because yeah. that's like a. But that, some, they totally ripped off Happy Death Day. If you've seen that movie, oh yeah, mm-hmm. that's right. Yeah, I mean that's the original. 
the original. I mean, Bill Murray saw it and he was like, <laughs> he was like get, yeah. get me my time machine back to 1991. Well, he called Shane Carruth. Yeah. yeah. It was just in turn. <laughs> he sat in a refrigerator yeah. box for yeah. three years and then came out in 1991. I th- am realizing that development is its own ecosystem in a lot of ways in that you talk about story and filmmaking in general nonstop all day, right? Mm-hmm. Um but in kind of an insular situation where you end up with a lot of jargon, I guess is what I'm saying. Do you know what I mean? So like I can, I can remember times where I've been in meetings having been in development and been like big idea. I think I know what you mean by that, but like who knows the big idea is probably a a more transparent term than I'm thinking of. But like you said keyhole earlier. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Things like that. Like, so I feel like a lot, a lot of the show... People I'm, talk about scope. Scope, noisy. There's just yeah, yeah, you know, there's yeah. stuff, right? I feel right? like, so. I mean, it might not be as popular now, but I feel like they, people used to always ask like what the engine was mm-hmm. yeah. for like a series. That's still, I mean... That's still a common More word. people should ask that about the shows that they make. Ooh. A little, a little burn there, a little shade. Oh, yeah. Shade on, <laughs> on everybody. Can I tell you, I, I was trying to find the name of the person we pitched to when I pitched this show a couple of years ago. We pitched to this company the woman whose company it was was allegedly at amc and she's the one that like found breaking bad and Mad Men. i forget her name Mm -hmm. that's what i was like trying to find but when we pitched our show which was kind of this like sci-fi mystery thriller show like a very similar show to uh manifest that's on tv right now yeah and i mean there was like a hundred shows that came out that like when we were pitching it those were kind of like exactly our show but uh, the feedback that we got from the development person there that we pitched to was that there's like that our show felt like a network show because there were like all these characters and all these storylines and they think of a cable show as one that really focuses on like one character in the pilot and slowly unfolds into like the world not not the world but that the rest of the characters kind of come off of like one person's point of view as opposed to like showing you like multiple points of view right in the beginning which i thought was like an interesting that's pretty like accurate. An interesting way to think about cable versus network. Well, I think it's, again, it's less true now the because we, I think the yeah. more streaming <laughs> services that there are out there and sort of like the less form-focused uh, development is mm-hmm. because it's like you get shows that are, they're just, they just happen to be episodic and they have, but their concept is so big, they don't need to follow any rules. And I think that, it's a whole, you know, a whole other podcast we could have about whether or not they should follow some rules. Mm-hmm. And is it really working when, you, you know, that they, you know, when they don't follow certain conventions sure. of, of uh, uh, long form uh, series writing? Right. You're saying basically that the difference between traditional television, something that comes out weekly versus something that's intended to binge and then also doesn't have to worry about the constraints of broadcast being like a certain runtime, things like that, all of a sudden that changes the storytelling as well. What you're Part of at. it is that, I mean, but I think something like Ozark or whatever, that could easily be on any cable network. Mm-hmm. It just right. happens to be on Netflix. And that is a more of a traditional television sure. story. It can go on for a long time. It is one single character. It starts with him and it kind of opens up. Um, and that is more of a, I think that's definitely something that AMC does or covets in some whatever way like they look for that again back to like streaming services and there's there's maybe more of a um value put on 
high concept. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that those rules don't apply as much to everyone anymore. That said, if you brought me a thing with multiple leads, the reason why people shy away from that is that a lot of times when you have a lot of different leads, you only have a really limited amount of time with each of them. Mm -hmm. So inevitably, when you tell the story of the character, each character, it's reduced to a- Like five scenes. Yeah, or like a simple, like, like, you know, archetype. And so you don't really get to know anybody. So you don't really connect with anybody. And it could not be as sophisticated or deep um, as it could be or if compelling. you compelling. Yeah, or compelling. Less, less if, good, really. Yeah, if you're, if you're only going to focus on right. one character. So if you took all that real estate and you just dedicated it to one guy that, or one girl, then all of a sudden you know somebody in this way that you couldn't if you only, if you were doing like five different characters that all had their own story. And so. And I think when, especially, I mean, to your point, as far as like runtime is concerned, that's a big factor if you have to obey like an hour long format. Right. I guess what I'm saying, like if I'm a listener now and I'm like interested in coming, you know, I have a great idea for a TV show and I want to pitch it and stuff. Like if I look at a show like Maniac and say like, oh, well, my show's just like Maniac and they made Maniac. So they'll probably be interested in my show. Yeah. It's like. Like those shows that break the format and that like the Romanoffs are like kind of these shows that have these oddball like runtimes or or like arcs or whatever, like they're being made by prestige showrunners. Sure. They're not like someone's um, first it, thing. Like the, the litmus test on that show on whether you're going to green light it or not is not the format. It's sure. the filmmakers. Well, I think that I think that that's uh, I think that's a very good point that any new person should keep in mind that if they're comparing their show to something that maybe has like a lot of a plus talent in it, I think that, you know, that they, their, their material needs to stand on its own because nobody knows who they are yet. You know? Right. Just to go back to the engine thing, just again, I think we have a lot of listeners that like work in Hollywood, but I think there's some that a lot of stuff is new to them. So I think something I just thought of is like, to me, an engine, the engine of the show is kind of like what pushes us from episode to episode. Right like what's generating the cliffhangers and what and the seasonal arc and like why we want to kind of tune back in next week I guess in the traditional um right and it, and I do think maybe like this is just an observation that's probably totally wrong but I'm just going to say that it seems like in those kind of premium cable shows a lot of times that engine comes up at the very end of the pilot and like in a network show like a network thriller or something it kind of seems to like come at the very beginning right like you're trying to like capture people and make sure they like come back after the commercial break i guess you would do that on amc also i don't know i guess i'm just i'm just trying to think uh, like back on like when you're pitching a show like what um like what people like you are looking for in it to determine whether you think it's a show that people will care about well when you talk about an engine i think a character engine is about an unsolvable conflict and I think that that unsolvable conflict is what makes it a TV show and not a movie. Because a movie has a conflict that is solved in two hours. Right. That's why I always talk about Walter White basically being the perfect engine. Every time he succeeds, he makes his problems worse. Right. And I mean, but I think that it's like... But isn't his isn't his problem solvable? Yeah, that I mean, his problem was never getting the money. Sure. It's about having an insolvable conflict like with yourself, like internally and externally, I think is sort of the the thing that you're looking for. Um, is it in a feature you end up changed by the end and in a TV show 
you don't end up changed by the end of the pilot? I mean, well, definitely not by the end of the pilot. I mean, I think arguably you'd say by the end of the series, maybe they would change. But sometimes, no. I mean, look at the greatest characters there are. I mean, I mean, if you look at, like, Tony Soprano, like, is he any different? Uh, is Walter White any different at the end? He maybe is a little more self-aware. I mean, I think the same for, like, Don Draper. I don't know that he's... Better at the end. Different. Yeah. I think yeah. he. I think he's more evolved. I think he under. He's accepting himself in a right. way that I think. So that actually. I mean, now that I think about it, I think that makes him very different than he is at the beginning of the series. He kind of lets go. Yeah, of like his. Yeah. Did you guys ever time. watch Review? Have you seen Review, Carrie? Oh, the Andy Daly the show. Andy Daly show. Not really, but I love Andy Daly. You do yourself a favor and watch that show. It is incredible. But the series finale, he. Basically, his flaw is that he believes that the work that he does reviewing life experiences is so valuable that he's willing to sacrifice everything, like his marriage, you know, uh, his health, everything to uh, to do this work. And he is given the cleanest out ever at the end of the series and like just goes right back into it. <laughs> like it uh, it's incredible. So anyway. That just reminded me of that. You should watch Andy Daly's the best. I think it was already an unpaid endorsement once upon a time. Yeah, it's also yeah. pretty short. Anyway, let's uh, let's go back a little bit actually, because so you said that you had worked in features for a while and then moved to AMC. Can you tell us a little bit about what specifically you're working on and doing in the last seven years, basically? Um, know, what does a development person do? Well, uh, I mean, AMC in particular does uh, current and development together. So that means that I look for, I hear pitches, I read scripts, I look for books to ad- to option or podcasts or, speaking of, is this for sale? Um, <laughs> um, well, um, there's a bidding war. <laughs> my mom loves it, this podcast. Yeah. Uh, my mom, I already told her, told her about it and she will be listening. Okay. Hi, mom. Hi. Oh, cool. Uh, and she will also love that I talked about her. <laughs> um, but anyway, yeah, so you could option uh, articles, whatever, and meeting with writers and developing ideas with them. And then you, uh, you know, you work on the scripts with them and then you ultimately get them ready to be considered. And then you are a part of the conversation to decide what scripts you pick up to series. And then you uh, help hire writers, you hire, um, you give notes on the scripts, you hire the directors, you hire, like, you know, kind of mm-hmm. oversee casting and all those things. And then, uh, and then... The, and are you on set? Um, just a little bit, you know, just right at the beginning. And if everything's going well, then not that much after that. But if things are not going well, uh, then sometimes there needs to be a reason for you to be around. Um, but that's usually only if there's something if that's, there's... like, not working. And so when you said you that AMC does both development and current at the same time... You yes. mean that you are the the executive soup to nuts for the entire series, basically. Yes, yes. And Which is so, unique, right? No, no well. uh, I'd say most places are both. Some places, uh, basically, there's a development executives that work on something all the way until the pilot is complete, and then they hand it hand off it to up. a current executive who does it the rest of the life of the series. And that just, you know, is because it's a current is a very time-consuming job. So sometimes some networks have chosen to have those jobs be separate. Mm -hmm. They also seem like very different type of jobs, right? Current is like about knowing this show and how it works, right? The new development seems to be more about like, like like you need to be sold on a a new show that you've never seen before and think that you can sell it to other people as opposed to a show that already exists, I guess. It just seems like a different part of your brain that you're exercising, you know? Um, I think that shows that maybe aren't as... 
I could see what you're saying is if a show is like a procedural or there was like a certain formula to the way that the show mm-hmm. was made. So, you know, getting in the ones that are going to go eight, nine, ten seasons, I can like see what you're saying. But a show, the show that's maybe um, has a lot, has a little bit more. I don't know. Uh, like every variation. season is something special. I think it's hard. It, you do still develop those seasons. It's mm-hmm. not you don't. Um, you're, you're still kind of contributing creatively, and so the people that worked on it from the beginning, partially because of the relationship that you would have with the creatives involved, makes the everything go more smoothly. And also you have a better understanding of the material going forward. So you would stay with the show. It's the same. I mean, right. it's a different... I, yeah. I, didn't mean, I didn't mean that it wasn't creative. I meant that your new shows are like a gamble a little bit. And a show that's greenlit, you're, all you care about is making this show good. Right. Yeah, you're making that show good, but it's still a gamble because who knows if it's going to work. And then every season you do, it's like who knows if it's going to continue to work. So, well, in your point of like each season being something special, we're in a new era where it's not like you set up an NCIS and it's like, well, there's a dead body at the beginning of every episode or whatever. I assume right. I don't know what NCIS is. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if there is a body on that one. I have no idea. Law and yeah. order. I don't watch <laughs> procedures. But you get what I'm saying. Like, yeah. you know. Everyone's at the bar at the beginning of Cheers. But now that things change and shift and evolve and each season does have its own big bad and sometimes even different locations and all of that stuff, it, right. it, it's a different deal. Also, I remember Comedy Central, I think originally when I was there, they would hand off after the pilot. And then when Kent came in, they all, they started doing it where like basically every executive was soup to nuts. So you would carry over. Um, and I think from a talent perspective, people like it better too, because like now Carrie's the person that found our show. We worked with her together and like when we get to keep making it with her rather than like you being like, well, good job, everyone. Now you're going to series. And then you got, have someone new who's more, they tend to be a little more like nuts and bolts, like a little more closer to a line producer, not literally, but like there's a, uh, there was a different mentality, I think to those people. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if that shift is happening everywhere. I think that's, I mean, it's just a, it's just a question of like volume, like how much you can handle, mm-hmm. like each person, the amount of hours in the day to be able to sure. find new things and also work on the things you're currently working on. So that's a great question then. In general, how many shows are people kind of like trying to juggle at any given time? How many shows can you, can one person handle that are both on the air and then also developing out of slate how does that work every every network is different um i think that we're probably a little bit more curated i Mm -hmm. think that each person is probably working on two or three current shows and developing in different stages probably 25 projects Mm -hmm. which is a lot yeah a lot it is a lot but some places maybe that are higher volume uh i've heard of develop i don't work at any of those places but i've heard of development executives being on like 10 shows or something like that, which is a lot of time. And then so you're not necessarily, you may not be focused on development as much as you are on like hearing a pitch that is fully baked and ready to go Mm -hmm. to series, like a couple scripts are written Mm -hmm. or, you know, whatever. Right. It's further down the line. Right. interesting. Okay. So I guess I'm thinking of your job as three different things. You have the kind of maintaining the shows that, that are being shot. You have listening to pitches for new shows and then you have finding material, like you said, podcasts or articles or um books like how much time of your week are you spending on 
just like finding new things. I mean, well, there's a, so there's a lot of different executives at different levels. So like every and everybody's kind of doing the same thing. So it's a kind of an all hands on deck situation. So it's like my assistant might find an article or we have like and we have different meetings during the week where we talk about somebody could have found a book and they're like, oh, you know, that would be great for this showrunner that we have an overall with or that would be, you know, there's a lot of it's collaborative. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the speculative piece of it is catch as catch can. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's like when you it comes across, you like do what you're your best to like you have different avenues. Like we have a book scout and he would like give us a list of new books that are out that we could read. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of it is just you know, sometimes it'll be submitted by agents and sometimes it'll be things that you just find through different, mm-hmm. like it'll just come across. Like, I mean, we optioned a podcast to be developed just based on something that I just was a fan of the podcast. And I was like, oh, we could do it. This as a series and just cold emailed them. And it could be that, like, where it's just something that you're a fan of, or it could be something that's like, you know, it just it depends on like how much sure. how many hours you have in the day. Some it just kind of goes than others. <laughs> goes into the stack basically. Is yeah. What you're yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So speaking of reading, like how many spec scripts do you read per week? Just new scripts. I mean, I think yeah. that uh, maybe five, probably new scripts, and then there's mm-hmm. like the scripts for the episodes or the shows you're working on. There's the scripts for the development that you're trying to get made that add up so you're probably reading maybe there's also samples for people for Mm -hmm. writing like you know for a um staffing job so i think and just new writers that you want to meet so i think it probably adds up to probably like 20 scripts a week maybe something like that but it's not and sometimes it's not that many and it just depends i guess i think like what's interesting is like if someone is like trying to get someone at amc to read their script like no you're that you're competing with for their time against these shows that already exist, yeah. new shows that they're already developing. Like, well, it's um, hard to get your spec script read. Also, right? Gary's been at this for a while. Correct me if I'm wrong, but you're not you're not the first person to read this script once it gets to your desk, right? Mm-hmm. Like, your assistant has vetted it, or, like, other people are I kind wish. of... You wish. <laughs> not all the time. It depends. I, I mean, like, everybody's yeah. kind of doing their own thing. Sure. So it's like, yes... But I, it's coming from an agent or something. There's a yeah. few filters. It's, yeah. it's not like... Someone's like, hey, Gary, read this, you know? Yeah, it could. uh, I mean, I've had it come from so many different ways. You know, like there's things like there's a million ways to get things through to people. Um, But uh, yeah, I mean, like I'll have I could ask somebody to read something like a junior executive to read something for me or my assistant read something for me like that definitely happens. Um, Sometimes I just read it. You know, it just depends on if right. I'm interested in reading it or not. <laughs> Does it come the other way around, though, I guess is what I'm what getting at? Like uh, that someone has read something and said, oh, Carrie, I think you need to read this. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's that's more a big part of, of that. Job. Yeah, right. yeah. There's a lot yeah. of that. I mean, I think that that's at, when you work at a place long enough, you move up and then you become right. the person that the person comes to to say. Right. Hey. right. Your assistant. It's a huge win for that person if they're like, you're going to like this. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's, I mean, the, that's, the recommend pretty much. Yeah. 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 I mean, and I think anybody who wants to be a development executive, that's the kind of thing you want to be able to find. And that's like the real like high altitude training of mm-hmm. a development executive is that you find something that nobody cares about and you say it's good and it like gets somewhere. You know yeah. what I mean? Because it's like that's the that's your taste is kind of the only chip you have to play. And so if you yeah. can find something that's awesome 
and nobody told you it was awesome. Like it's like you're like, oh man, we really should work with this guy, Steven Soderbergh. He's the best. <laughs> sure. And you're like, right. thanks, thank God you were here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, like, <laughs> if you yeah. weren't here to say yeah. that, I don't know what we would have done. <laughs> but I guess like the good example is like, right? Someone reads like the Mr. Robot feature script, and they're like, this could be a TV show. Yeah. Right. And then it is. Mm-hmm. Orin teases me all the time about like, there's so much lingo of like, you know, <laughs> we went another direction or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like there's a there's a politeness to Hollywood sometimes that yeah. I think is interesting. The writing you know? didn't resonate with me. Yeah, I, I didn't, it didn't really spark for me or whatever people say. Oh yeah, know? no. There's like I feel like you could make a whole like list of development cliches. Like let's put a pin in it. Sure. Or yeah. like we're circle the wagons, <laughs> you know. Or uh, I'm trying to think of a. What good does one. circle the wagons mean? Well, you know, it's like when you go and you talk to everybody else and then come back. And then, dis- like, circling wagons is just, like, discussing. Yeah, like, we can't talk about this in front of you, is what we're right. saying. Yeah. Right. Yeah, we're going to go let, circle the wagons on whether or not we buy this show for you. Or, like, let, let's take this offline. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I'll think of some a more. flashback, yeah. As, as over the course of the conversation. Yeah, yeah. But circle the wagons, like, it could come back positive, right? Yeah. Yeah, no, it's not bad. Necess- none of them are supposed to be bad. They're all supposed to be, like, neutral to, like, get out of a conversation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Right. So earlier you said, uh, you know, if it's a script that you really want to read, you'll just read it. Um, Like, can you give us any insight into like what makes you really want to read a script? Is it a logline? Oh, and just a kind of related question is like, do you ever receive a script with like a packet, like a visual, any sort of pitch deck or anything? Sure. It doesn't. I'll be honest. It doesn't really mean anything. I think when people do it, It can be helpful if you're in person to show some images while you're kind of talking about what you want to do. But the 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 most important thing is the script. And if you are nobody and nobody's ever heard of you, the fact that you are able to make a presentation with like great images from other movies is sort of not relevant. The only thing that's going to matter is the script. Does it put a little bit of like a stank on it? No. No. I don't think so. But does it help sell a tone? Like, I mean... Like, I don't know if Black Mirror or like Drive or there's some there's some movies and things where like the way it's made kind of elevates it, you know, beyond the script. Yeah, I think that uh, it's all like you can't it all goes back to the script. If you have a script, that is the effective thing. I think sometimes a good sizzle, like a Mm -hmm. edited reel that can be compelling and really set a tone images are an I guess sort of a like an icing on the cake I guess but mm-hmm. it's not the cake so it's like you can't you know and I guess it's not even I, icing is maybe even too grand a word for it I think it's sort of just like it's window dressing it's not gonna push you over the edge right because I guess good writing would give you the tone you'd yeah. get the tone from that though I will say as much as like a, a document that has images is not going to sell anything. I do think a document that has information about the season or or what you want to say with the series or like what the intent is can be very helpful. Oh, that's interesting. So I yeah. think that that is actually something that I think does people can be, you know, can be really interesting, especially if you have a show that goes a lot of different places and you want to be able to say, mm-hmm. here's what this is going to be. Because, right. you know, the this the pilot may just be the tip of the iceberg so you want to give someone a taste of like where it's going and you also that's your opportunity to really sell in prose as opposed to just selling on the page in a screenplay so yeah. i think it's a 
Um, that's much more compelling than images. And sure, you could have like a document that has some images in it. I'm not saying like, it's not going to be like, oh, this amateur, what is in this? Like, I mean, people do it all the time. I'm just saying it's like, never in my life have I been like, this script's okay, but man, the lookbook. Boy. (laughs) Really uh, I also like Blade Runner. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I guess I think, yeah. What's that? Oh, the OA. Do you remember that show? Sure. I feel like that's a show that probably came in with like a lookbook you know like yeah i mean no they all do i'm just saying it doesn't really and i think it's like look if you have a director attached to your material and they come in they should have a lookbook they should be saying what they think Mm -hmm. it should look like they should have a strong point of view about the tone and the look of the show and 100 percent. what if it's a writer director they should same thing sure if they're coming in to meet sure they don't have to but i guess i'm just saying it also depends on like it depends on the context. Right, right. I think it's like if you are nobody and you're just trying to get somebody to care about your story and you send in an email from an agent, the script and the lookbook, I don't need to look at the lookbook. But if I read the script and I liked it enough to meet, then you can show me the lookbook. Because you're, right. you're, you're talking about the series and you're like, this is how I want it to feel. This is the thing, whatever. But it's like actually just sitting on the page. It's like it's like the 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 script is the gate. I'm not even going to, why even look at the lookbook if I right. don't, but, but a format document, like, or a document that like has like a little bit of a window into what the series is, I would definitely look at because I want to know what the intent is of the creator, especially if it's something that like is again, just a window into where it's going to go. And right. it's if it's not as traditional, then you may like episode one of a certain show, like you don't even know where it could go. You know what I mean? Right. So you want to kind of know that. That's so interesting. What about like a proof of concept? Like if someone sent like a, we filmed like the cold open or a trailer or something. Yeah, I mean, I think film is, is, uh, can be really compelling if, if it's good. Do you know what I mean? Or it can be an issue if it's just okay. Mm-hmm. Like, I think it's like kind of like you don't want to send it unless you know it's an A plus because then you, you, cause there's, right. it's, it's but so that's much. also true for the script. Sure. Right. But I mean, but it's much easier to sell a product, a promise than a product. Mm -hmm. So like if you just have a script where anybody can picture how it's going to be, then that's one thing. And who's going to be in it and and how much it's going to cost. So, but if you shoot something and it's awesome, sure. But you have to really be hard on yourself when you make something. And just, just because you made it doesn't mean people should see it. Like I think. Yeah. So it's like, it's, it's a, it's a difficult thing to decide, but I think. It's just the truth. Like, I mean, I think that's like why agents and managers can, why uh, one of the reasons they have a job is because they're the ones that's supposed to have that hard conversation with the client and say, mm-hmm. I don't, I think this is strategically, I think we should just send the script. And it's not against the person. It's just more like if you didn't have the resources that you would have, if you actually like had the money to really make it the way you wanted, you know. Right. It's but so it, interesting because I feel like a lot of times, I mean, maybe I'm just giving bad advice, but I say that it's like, really hard to get people to read your script and sometimes you know like we get people send us scripts all the time i mean as like directors or even as like podcast hosts they're like hey i worked on this project here's a script and if i see like a 60 page pdf like i'm probably never going to read it but if they send it with like a short film or like Mm -hmm. a lookbook i'll probably flip through it because it takes like 10 seconds you know or i'll watch the first the short film and if the first scene is horrible i'll probably stop but i'll i'll give that more of a chance to grab my attention than sitting down and reading the script. Sure, but you wouldn't buy it. Right. Well, right. So, that, so we're talking about right. two different things. Because if you, you are trying to get an agent or a manager having more content 
that shows the versatility of you as a filmmaker or a artist can be very helpful. But I'm just saying to you as somebody who's going to buy a piece of material, it just doesn't matter if that thing is good. The only material is the script. Yeah. Is what you're saying. That's yeah. it. That's, that's the most important that's thing. You can yeah. have the other stuff and it can be helpful. I'm just saying it's just not really. Like, right. I guess if I'm the script saying, isn't good, it's not good. Yeah. What, yeah. And again, maybe this is because you're kind of like in a higher level and people are vetting a lot of projects before you're seeing them. But oh, like, you'd be surprised. <laughs> I, but I guess I'm just saying. That is actually when, when I quit, I was like, oh, well, I've read a lot of garbage. So I know I can do better than that. <laughs> yeah. I guess I'm just saying, like, if the logline is is a little lackluster, like, can something other than just the script get you to read the script? I mean, obviously, if there's a list attachments or something, that well, probably I think, helps. I think that that's where the um, the logline does come in. I think it's there's so many levels of like what we're talking about of how to get noticed or like at different places. So I think that like if I was a writer and I was just starting out and I was like if I'm giving somebody advice who's like a new screenwriter, I would write a sample with a really crazy hook. And so that if someone said the log line to you, that you'd be like, what? And you'd actually read it. Basically, it's like don't writing. Don't worry about it getting made or anything like nope. that, right? It's yeah, like, it's, it's, like, like... it's like a blacklist script. Yeah. You know what I mean? Which are all kind of like, it's kind Bonkers. of become a, you know. Yeah, right. sure. The log line is the Right. Is the that's like, that's sort of where it's gone. Uh, I mean, I mean, I don't read them anymore, but I mean, before when I used to, that, that, that was a big thing. But I think it's like it's compelling when somebody says, oh, it's this, they give you this great hook. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And uh, um, can you tell us related to that? How important is it for like the first five pages to grab you or any of that stuff? I think it's important. I mean, I think you need to show your voice like and and, and come in. And I don't know that it, it doesn't mean that it has to be like big. It just has to have a point of view. It has to be strong in like what it's saying. And I think that like readability is really important, um, especially when you're trying to get noticed as a as like a staff writer, like as a young writer, is is sort of like if you read like a good writer's script, it's like a pleasure to read. And the way that they write the action description is a subliminal message for what the tone of the piece is. You know what I mean? Like they write it in a certain, they don't overwrite it. It's not mm-hmm. too much action mm-hmm. description. But what they do economically sends a message about the kind of show that it is and like what it they've, they, they're very like, deliberate in what how they're saying the way a character is doing a certain thing like that i think that the best scripts do that mm-hmm. and they're those are the ones that are a pleasure to read and i think the dialogue is important and sort of like the way that you hook someone in in the same way that you would think about for a pilot the way you'd hook someone in if you just watch the show if you saw a really compelling teaser you'd probably watch the whole episode it's the same thing if you're reading it i mean but i'm you know, I'm not just going to stop reading after the first five pages. I'll give it a chance. I'm just saying, like, it is helpful to think of a compelling teaser. But I think if you're just trying to get noticed, you're trying to get representation, if you're trying to get staffed when you're young, it is like, or just starting out, mm-hmm. having a unique, weird sample can be very effective. Right. It's helpful to front load things. Yeah. Right? Like, be but, interesting, but right? She's also saying, back. like, loud, weird in your face like, like bigger fresh than and original like saying like oh i just made breaking bad but it's with a woman is like not that interesting right right as opposed to I built a time machine to go get sure. richard nixon to do this thing whatever yeah. right but it could also be very specific to who you are as a person right. i think that's the other thing that's really important is that especially in television is is uh is if somebody if you write a extremely authentic 
story that somebody would uh, mm-hmm. read. Can you give like, us an example? I mean, it could just be like someone's like personal personal story. Like not as, like I mean, like I think like if they grew up in a really specific environment mm-hmm. that they wrote about, like if they wrote about their family. Like we work with a lot of playwrights and a lot of people's plays are about their own personal life. And like like there's a, you know, like there's writers that they, they just write it about their family and they like, and it just feels so real that you're like, this person has like an ear for dialogue or they like, they, they're perceptive in this way where you feel like they're going to be like, cause when you're making a writer's room, you're making like a baseball team. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, so that, I think that that can be, it's, it's like a just, you're, you're, you're putting your stamp on like, this is the kind of writer that I am. This is how I sound. This is my style. You know what I mean? Like, I think that that that's kind of what you're coming in with at first. And that could be, I mean, it could be a lot of different things. If you're Shane Black or something, you're, that's a certain kind sure. of writing that, but it's very, it, it's very bold. You like read the first five pages and you're like, I get this. I get mm-hmm. who this guy is. But that's not the same way that like, like the script for girls for like Lena Dunham, that was like very specific to her experience and like more authentic and like what she wanted to say. But it was like totally different kind of vibe but they both are valid in their own way i feel like though like at least girls is still kind of like at this universal message still relatable even though it's like hyper specific to like her experience because i feel like a lot of times we get even people send us like we made a web series and it's like about some diverse group of people in some town that you've never seen that story but you look at the the plot and it's like pretty much the same kind of drama like it doesn't feel fresh aside from the casting, you know, yeah. or the location. I, I want to shift a little bit, actually, or maybe follow up with something you were saying before, Carrie. You were saying, like, there's a handful of different things that we're talking about here, right? And you kind of focused in on, like, if you're a brand new writer, how to get noticed, right? Are you looking for that for baby writers? Or are you kind of, like, working with people who are a little bit more established? Um, I think, uh, it doesn't matter as long as the script's good. I mean, I think Lodge 49, which is a show that's on AMC that that's a short story writer. That's the first I'm, I don't want to, I'm not positive, but I'm pretty sure it's one of the first pilots he had ever written. If not the first, I guess what I'm I'm really asking, I don't want to, I'm sorry if I, if I give a lot of wrong facts on this podcast, (laughs) it it didn't read like it was the first thing he ever wrote. It was very good. (laughs) We made it. Um, what I'm getting at is, uh, you were saying, okay, well, if you want to be, you know, if you want to get noticed first thing, if you're young, this is what you do. Have you noticed what, what are people doing after they've, you know, been a staff writer and they're coming in or like, what's the difference between trying to get noticed first thing and maybe like having been around a little bit? I think like what Matt is asking is like, how does Matt get noticed? I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, but I'm saying like you were saying, well, there's a couple different things. Well, we talked about one of those things. Let's talk about the other one. I think that getting I know when it comes to staffing shows, I think what people really respond to is, again, having a strong point of view about the material that you want to, of the show you want to work on. And in some cases, um, uh, a show that we have uh, called The Terror, that's a, this second season takes place during a Japanese internment. And uh, there's a writer, the staff writer um, had a PhD in Japanese folklore. Mm-hmm. And he had been a writer's assistant on a bunch of shows, but like, He's he, like, this is my time. No, he was, and and also I will say that he Thank had. God you, he got the job, huh? He, he did. Um, and uh, but I will say he also had really strong recommendations from showrunners that he had worked with that uh-huh. were like, "This guy is the guy." Yeah, and like so Great. he 
that was uh, um, that helped him kind of. I'm so glad he got that job. Me too. He's great. <laughs> Good. Um, but the uh, I think uh, so. I think strong at having a strong point of view about material and like being able to be versatile. Um, well, it just depends. I mean, I think that like you you do have to be able to being a sta- a writer on a staff. It's like it is more like a job. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Because you are have to deal with you know a community of like other writers and then there's politics and right. figuring out where your role is and, right. and that, those kinds of things and then i think that getting that experience on staff because the writer is in charge ultimately in television being a good writer and being experienced together mm-hmm. is is can be very valuable to mm-hmm. you right so, that's the next step really is what you're saying yeah it's right. like getting yeah. that experience and yeah. then i think also because getting the experience makes you a better writer but it also makes you a better producer which is ultimately the job that you're going to have to do as a showrunner right but in the case of something like lodge 49 we had jim gavin who created that show and that he didn't have television experience so he was paired with peter Ako, a showrunner and they they worked on the show together yeah that makes sense i think um i mean we talked a ton about writing but i guess the other thing that's really interesting is like how do you hire directors like what a, like what do you look for in that it you know it episodic directing or for pilots or episodic Ooh, let's let's go both we'll, we'll let's start with pilots actually I mean, pilots, I think it's the same thing you'd look for in features. It's like you're looking for somebody with a point of view that they have their storyteller and they have a point of view of how to use the camera to help tell the story. And how do you determine that? What are you looking at? I mean, I think there's a lookbook. Here, here comes our lookbook. It's there, yes. usually there is a lookbook. I got some lookbooks. Yeah, for yeah. You, uh, so, I mean, I think that like having a, a specific point of view and a take as to like how the show would look, I think is. Uh, important i think that there's more of a collaborative partnership at for pilot directors um i mean i think amc is maybe more of a traditional tv network where we do that is a collaborative situation i think maybe again in in certain premium situations the sometimes the filmmaker is sort of taking over or in some cases but that's not necessarily true in the way that we've traditionally done it um if you have like someone that's directed a lot of comedy stuff but they have like a really great pitch on like a dramatic series would you consider them like how how much is their previous work playing into i think it matters i mean it's it's but it's more like can they do it like it's like it's somebody like a guy like hiro mirai doing atlanta technically that's a half hour but like we would have given that guy give that guy any drama you know what i mean because of the work that he's doing is so cinematic on a half hour that it just it kind of does translate um, but somebody who's maybe done more traditional half hour work that has less cinema kind of associated with it and is more about the kind of comedic timing mm-hmm. and the, you know, kind of like closed sets or whatever, like that's going to be harder um, to give the person that opportunity. So their past work has like a huge, it is probably a bigger indicator than even their pitch and their lookbook. And- yes. All I mean, well, stuff. they probably wouldn't, we probably wouldn't meet with them. Yeah. I mean, we wouldn't go, I mean, we wouldn't go out to them in the first place if that's the case, because we're looking for people that we feel like could make it happen. Right. Do you're you ever not, have like open directing assignments? Not really, because we're kind of only doing, we're making so few, you know, we're, we only make a certain amount of shows a year. And so, and usually the showrunner has a really strong opinion about the kind of director that they want. So they, you know, kind of dictate the process. Let's right. actually let's take a step back because um, yeah, how many directors do 
do you even meet with on a pilot? Like three, mm. give or take? It depends. It could yeah. be more. Yeah. But like, I imagine if the three are great, then you stop there. But if right. they're sure, not sure. great, you'd keep going. But no more than, say, ten, right? No. Yeah, right. definitely yeah. not. But obviously there's way more than ten great directors uh, that do hour-long you know, shows, right? So how do you, how do you even get that list? Where does that get whittled down from? Tell us about that process a little bit before Um, you get to the meeting stage. I mean, I think it's just about working with the showrunner to determine the look of what they want the show to be. And then we put together a list of people that are available. So when you say put together a list because you've met with those people, because you're aware of their work, because agencies sent you the people they liked, all of the above. above. Because they had a movie at Sundance that did well. all the above. So if you're a director that wants to be on Carrie's list, you have to be at an agency and have a movie at Sundance. That's what I'm getting. I'm I'm teasing. I'm teasing, but I guess what I'm saying is, is like, this is the stuff that the show is about, right? Like, you go from everybody to less than 10 people. That in between is the question mark for me. Well, I mean, I think it's like a lot of his availability Mm -hmm. um, experience. Uh, Mm -hmm. I think that if it's a big show, you can't give it to somebody who hasn't done something that's that big before. Then you get people start getting nervous. You know what I mean? You need it to be somebody who has experience to a degree. Um, But it's somebody I think that has a, a... it, it isn't an exact science. I think that that's the mm-hmm. maddening thing about working in the entertainment business is like there's no map mm-hmm. to, to how you get. And so much of it is exactly what you think. It's like timing and opportunity and you never know how those things are going to come about. Right. Yeah, and, I mean, I think we've had quite a few directors on that have directed pilots. And I feel like it's like a Sarah Dina Smith or... Um, sure, yeah. Uh, Augustine Frizzell. She did like an HBO pilot. Off, she did one feature at Sundance and it totally mm-hmm. just happened to hit the exact right thing they were looking for for that. Yeah, talent. I mean, I think that if you're like the one, if you made one feature and it is exactly the vibe that you need for the pilot, sure. yes, you could do it. Sure. But it's like, it just, you, you're kind of just, uh, again, you just, it just, it's all opportunity, you know? Right. But there's nothing like, I think everyone we've talked to, there's nothing like not, not one of those people like a Paul Briganti or Matt Pollock or any of them like have like said like i'm gonna i'm aiming for that list they're all mm-hmm. like i'm gonna make stuff and hopefully you know if people if it resonates with people hopefully they'll add me to their list yeah <laughs> right. well i mean right. i think agents do suggest people they know that what's available and they will suggest right. their clients for right for the material because i mean we can't know about everybody of course yeah so the show gets picked up you guys are going for it now you need a handful of directors what happens then for for series for series for the yeah. episodic mm-hmm. i mean i think that that Depends on the show. I think that if a show is big and complex and lots going on, more likely to work with uh, or feel more comfortable with directors with more experience. I think shows that are smaller, mm-hmm. more contained, um, then you have an opportunity to take more risks and try out new people. Mm-hmm. So that's, I mean... More episodes too, right? You know, like I'm always... Season six of like a network sitcom. It's like, oh yeah, the... Um... Line producer directed an episode on that one, you know. Right. So it's like, yeah, again, a first season show, you're still figuring sure. it out. And so you're booking people when you haven't shot a frame. Right. So you don't know how it's going yet. Right. So right. then you're like, you're sort of thinking like, we've made this huge investment. Mm-hmm. Do but, we want someone who's like a steady hand to do this, sure. you know? 
And also that line producer on season six probably knows that show knows better show. than most people sure. exactly. in the world. Yeah, yeah. yeah, for sure. Yeah, and it's like, hey, I'm going to quit unless you give me an episode. Yeah. <laughs> maybe. maybe. Um, we've seen a, a shift from um, multiple directors in a season to oftentimes like a show just having a single director throughout the entire time. Do you have any thoughts on that? Um, I think it's a post-issue most of the time. Mm-hmm. I think that that's a exciting thing to have someone do all the episodes, but that means that you can't start editing it until after they're done shooting, which means that then your post schedule is like right. way longer because it's going way after the thing's done shooting. And so that can affect if your show is supposed to be on the air at a certain time, mm-hmm. that pushes your air date and it also makes the post longer. So that's more expensive. Um, so I think that. Awesome. I'm sold on it. I want more directors on the series. So I think that that can be, I think that's a a luxury that I think more traditional television networks like don't really have. Mm -hmm. Um, But some cable networks I feel like are doing that more, right? Like I feel like FX will do that all the time and always drives me nuts, right? Like Baskets, isn't that one guy? Yeah, I mean, I think that they'll figure out a way to do it. I mean, it happens. Yeah. I think that uh, hour long's harder. Right. Um, I think so. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. So the easiest way into TV is get a PhD in Japanese folklore. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I feel like I've run into a lot of people recently that have been like writing their whole lives, but then have shifted a little bit into screenwriting or entertainment later in their careers. Mm-hmm. And be like, oh, I was a novelist or a playwright or something like that. And then I think there is something seductive about discovering the new awesome voice the exciting voice that hasn't been in television or film at all but also with a lifetime of experience and craft and like they're still storytellers and it um right. they're confident and command they yeah. have a lot of command they're great at their job they're just it's a new form for them and so it's like they get the best of both worlds and i'm mm. very jealous yeah i think yeah. you just i should go write a book well i mean i look <laughs> that that you're not wrong i mean that can be it's always helpful to like have proven yourself in a different field. Sure. Um, but there's also like a ton of lawyers that end up as writers. Sure. And they're good. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, yeah. I think that happens a lot. Yeah. Just like be smart and like live life a little bit. Yeah. yeah. And be, yeah. De- I feel like lawyers and writers are both like very detail oriented. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, when you read a script, like you said, from someone that's not detail oriented, it's like annoying. And yeah. you realize, wait, being a lawyer sucks. I need to do something else that's very lucrative. Yeah. <laughs> but I feel like in in conclusion, <laughs> there's, uh, not to plug our podcast too much, but like, it seems like kind of the way to success in TV as a filmmaker or a creative person outside of the studio is, um, or outside of the company, is you make you stuff, make you know, stuff. write yeah. stuff, either write stuff and show it to people and pitch it until it's good enough to get bought or create you know make movies or whatever shoot stuff until enough people notice it to put them put you on their list oh my god totally i mean i think the just shoot it concept is awesome i i mean i know i was kind of like poo-pooing the like you know lookbook or whatever but if you like there's definitely writers i mean just recently there was a short that someone had made that was really great that um my uh co-worker had seen and showed to me and was like we should staff this person on this room like this short is awesome Mm -hmm. and like and like that's how she found it was the short and she like went and found who represented him and was like really into it and like just based on seeing the short was just like this is great and like this person's perfect for the show and like that i think that that 
does totally work. I think that like the sort of presentation or trying to do the little bit of your total big idea that maybe you didn't have the money to really do the way you mm-hmm. wanted, then That's when then you get into trouble. Yeah. But at the same time, like I think, you know, if you could figure out a way to do it, like you look at like the short for like George Washington or whatever, mm-hmm. or like right, right. Boys in the Hood, that was the start right. as a short or like Whiplash. Or, yeah, Whiplash. Like, you know, there's so many if you can get the the funding right. for it, you can really impress somebody and it can just like skyrocket right. like the, right. your your opportunities. So I do think a, a like a, a good short is uh can can really do something. Help you out. Yeah. But I have my own opinions about what makes a good short. Sure. Ooh. Ooh. Can you just give us three bullet points real quick? I think it's just the one the one piece of advice I would give is it needs to be a completed thought. You have to say something. You mm-hmm. have to complete the short and say, oh, okay, that's what you were saying. I think a lot of times it doesn't it's just, fizzle out a little bit. Yeah, yeah fizzle out or, or just sort of don't say something that's like that profound. Like you're just kind of like shrug right. at mm-hmm. the end of it. Or it's and like it, a slice of life, right? Yeah. Like it's like you want to say something. I think that that can work. The slice of life can work if you really put the money into the look mm-hmm. and you're that's more what you're sh- selling. But I know for me personally, I'm looking for somebody where I'm like, wow, like this is you said something and this felt emotional i think well like the whiplash short i i saw that short because sure. my friend produced it and i was like i remember like the she we did like a there was like a screening at the soho house or something and we like went and saw it i like saw that and i like cried yeah and i was just like wow this is like the, it it really just was like and i think that was sort of a, a representation of like this person's ability to convey emotion in a scene and it was that's a big risk to take that like because that is less a completed thought and more of a just like mm-hmm. just like a spear into your gut and he nailed it what happens in the short i've never seen it it's you, the scene yeah it's just the not my tempo scene right yeah oh it's oh just well, the, that's a good scene yeah <laughs> so i mean i think that 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 goes against my like uh my advice no about but it does give you it, it gives you an engine it gives you point of view it gives yeah. you obviously there's visual and it's musical you know and it's more complete than, watch way. than it could be like oftentimes it's like oh we just shot a scene from the movie mm-hmm. like well, it doesn't feel like it's yeah we went to this festival where chrissy's movie played remember um i forget what it was called but there was this one short about this couple that lived in like afghanistan or iran or something and they were yeah. like under there was some civil war and they had to be yeah. like hiding out in their apartment yeah. and it was real i mean it was in arabic and stuff and they were hiding and people were shooting and it looked good it felt real but that's all they did. They were just hiding out all night. And I was like, where are we going with this? Like, I yeah. love the authenticity, but it's nothing. It's like, you know, them, a couple, and there are a couple issues hiding out while, you know, there's terrorists outside. Yeah. Yeah. Again, just kind of slice, slice life, with, but without anything. Um, the thing I wanted to go back to, though, the thing I love about the shorts, in shorts in general, and kind of what I realized now I was getting at with the, like, what do you literally do when you make a list question? is I think that it always kind of boils down to access, mm-hmm. right? And so, um, you know, if if you don't have an agent and you, you haven't met Kerry Gologli in person, then you don't end up on that list, right? Um, but the the flip side of that is that I think there's a culture and development of being the first to find the cool new person, right? So seeing that short, like sending that around the office and being like, oh my God, this is so awesome. 
let's meet this person. That's the way in. That's why just shooting it still makes sense. It whether totally you, makes sense. Whether you have an agent or whatever. You know what I mean? Like, just because you can't hand somebody a script or or forward them an email or whatever, there's still a way to get in front of people like you. Completely. I think it's the, I mean, it's the right thing to do if you want to, that's kind of the only thing you can do. Especially writing, it's like easier to do. You can do it like, I mean, it's not easy. Don't get me wrong. Sure. It's really hard. But it's a... Uh, you can just do it on your laptop. You can go to the library and type. Right. Yeah. But yeah. directing, it's really like that's such a huge, it takes a, it's a lot of, you know, confidence and courage and risk sure. that goes into really doing. Naivete you, maybe even. No, I mean, well, I, mean, I think yeah, that that's, that's a, uh, that's a powerful thing. <laughs> yeah. um, and I think uh, it's. It, it takes a lot of guts to do it because you got to convince a ton of people to do it with you. Um, so it's a, it's a, I, but I think it's a completely valuable thing to do and I like really respect it. And um, it's just, you know, and I think those, those things do matter, you know, and can get you representation and can get you in the right doors for sure. Um, but you just have to, I, that's why I would say, really think about what your short is mm -hmm. like really be hard on yourself about what the concept for your short is i'd say think uh, like be like really litigate what is the idea that you're shooting what are you trying to say how good is the story mm -hmm. that's the thing you should be like like really thinking about well, why is this my calling card like why is this the thing that i want someone to send around people's offices and then shoot it mm -hmm. but like really think about it before you do it because it's like if you're really going to put everything Sure. Into that, you want to make sure that it's right. And I'm 99% sure I know the answer to this question, but if a short has like 10 million views or something, does that make any difference to you? Not really. I mean, I think it's like, I mean, sure, I guess. I mean, like if it's like popular, sort of. I guess I just don't think about it like that. I <laughs> no, don't think it matters. The answer is no. <laughs> I don't think it matters. Curious being nice, no. Yeah. I it, mean, it's just, is it good? I mean, that's, that's the sad thing is, is that like doesn't really mean anything anymore because it's like if something has a lot of views, like, so do a lot of right. Well, like, kind of like whatever things. videos. Yeah. 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 Um, Which again is great news, right? Like you, you wouldn't hold it against a, a Vimeo link that had 200 views. No. 20 views. You don't Not care. Not if it's good. Yeah. Who cares? You don't care. If anything, you're yeah. like, yeah, nobody's heard of this yeah. yet. Yeah, exactly. That, that's what I'm getting at. Yeah. Like and the contrary. Yeah. yeah. Like if something yeah. has 5 million views, but the production values are like, it's clearly viral because it's about something hyper specific, like. A Harry Potter thing or something, you know, but it's not, I guess I think yeah, a lot your, of times. Your rap video about Harry Potter yeah. doesn't, hey, doesn't matter. I have yeah. a pretty good, <laughs> straight out of Hogwarts. I actually would love have you ever seen that? about Harry Potter. Yeah, Gary would love that. Uh, check, yeah. I, I have one. It's got about 2 million views. Uh, awesome. Well, thanks so much, Gary. We could talk for another five hours, but um, I think we should probably hop into endorsements. Let's do it. Unpaid endorsements. Unpaid endorsements. <laughs> Um, Charles is the person who sings our unpaid endorsements theme. Really? <laughs> yeah. It's so funny because I know my, my unpaid endorsement is Light the Fuse. Light the Fuse is a Mission Impossible podcast that is hosted by two of our friends, Charles and Drew. The reason why I love it so much is that they really know what they're talking about. Without and a doubt. they yeah. get, and they really care. and But they're also like huge fans and they like love it so much. Yeah. And so... And, and they're also really funny. And so I think that that's why the interviews that they do are so good because they the questions they ask are so specific, but they have the, through the lens of someone who's like a big fan of the, mm -hmm. the stuff and they're, they're not really concerned about impressing the person. They're right. more just concerned with like 
the kind of things a fan would ask, but like an extremely informed fan because they both, you know, love movies, but also work in the business. And so it's like, I find the interviews to be like really compelling. And like, I also think they've gotten some really great people and continue to get great people. I think that's why that I think that's why how they get those great people is like you. It's not just a fanboy podcast. It's like, oh, no, these guys know exactly what they're talking about. Oftentimes. Like on the Ellswood interview, like they definitely remembered things way more than he did. Oh no, but it was great. But and he was such what a great interview, Robert. So Elswit, good, yeah, great. What's great. the podcast about? It's, it's about Mission Impossible. It's about oh, all of the hundred percent, all Impossible. Mission Impossible, and it's about all the movies, and they do all these different things. But they've kind of started the domino effect has begun, so it's getting better and better because they got you know like the composer and, from and one editor, of the movies and then yeah, yeah. editor and then they ended up getting chris mcquarrie and then they got robert ellswit oh, cool. and then they have some more that i'm i don't want to spoil they have some good ones coming down the pike that i heard about like oh, can't put it stand on mic but like i'm pretty excited about it but the thing is is i feel like so many movie podcasts the people are so they're trying to impress the person they're interviewing yeah, sure. or they're trying to sound smart in this way that is just distracting and annoying and i think that or they're just not funny or, or entertaining mm-hmm. as a as an interviewer. And like, look, I'm biased because I'm friends with them, but I think that they're like really good interviewers. Like to the point where at when I was coming over here thinking about what I was going to say in this thing, I was like, they should do all of this and then they should pick another movie series and do it with something else that they love. Like do do another like deep, deep dive. They should like yeah. make a deep dive podcast because it's like I'm like loving every minute of it. It's great. It's tricky though because – you know, you have to, I think part of what's beautiful about that podcast is that like it started when they were kind of nascently becoming, falling in love with film. Do you know what I mean? So like that first mission movie came out in 96, Mm. 97. So I think like there's something beautiful about it tracking basically from adolescence into uh, adulthood. Do you know what I mean? That, that would be hard to replicate. Yeah. No, I, I, yeah, I guess I just like want them to do more. Sure. Yeah. They have stretched seven movies and a TV series into uh, 40, 50 episodes of a podcast. It it's a lot. It's, it's a lot. lot. It's, it's, have it's, they seen the whole TV show the yeah. series and everything? Yeah. They know so. everything yeah. about it. They do. They yeah, do. Yeah. They also have one that's all about like the movies that never got made. Like that, like, like Oliver Stone was attached to direct mission mm-hmm. possible Two at one point. So there's lots of like really good, uh, like they like quote a lot of like entertainment weekly articles from like 1994. <laughs> it's like, pretty good. but, but, <laughs> Just off the cuff, like they've truly internalized it in a way that's very charming. Yeah. 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 And I think they both have that head for data like that, you know, in a way that's uh, impressive. Yeah. Light the fuse. Good one. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. I'm happy to talk about it. Um, I've got two, actually. One regular one and then a bonus one that, Orin, I think you're going to be excited about. So my first one is a music video that I have watched, I don't know how many, like five or six times. It's super simple for a song called Fading by um, Abel Farben and Ilaria. I don't know. I don't know how to say their names. <laughs> the links will be in the show notes. They're like a DJ and pop act. I don't like listen to their music at all. Um, but I have a friend who was in the video, so I checked it out because it was like going super viral. And it's basically just your standard kind of like medium budget music video of like cool outfits and like a few models on like a pink psych like and some fun prop props and they're posing um but then the twist is that this guy my friend dave uh is this like incredible dancer who kind of just looks like a like a normal goofy kind of guy he's got like a gnarly goatee and he's like a little heavy and he keeps trying to sneak into the video 
and just does silly dances and it's the cleanest stupid music video and it is so charming to me and so they end up in this weird he and the pop star have this crazy duel um where they're just kind of dancing and he's trying to like steal the spotlight so simple so elegant it i've watched it like five or six times in a row it's like so funny and and truly performance based on both ends like dave is so incredible at like kind of stealing the spotlight and the singer is like really good at kind of being annoyed with him without overselling it so i thought uh, what a wonderful um, little music video. So uh, we'll have sh- links to the show notes. Maybe you guys have probably heard of this very famous person who I can't pronounce their name of. But the more important one, uh, one of my favorite podcasts, Imaginary Worlds. And there's an important new episode called uh, The Power of the Makeover Mage. And it is guest hosted by our one and only Jay McAuliffe, our editor. Oh, really? Yeah. It was like such a delight. I was like literally like freaking out. Just by um, coincidence? Just by coincidence. So it's one of my favorite shows. And Jay has been cutting the show for a couple of years now. Cutting our show. Cutting our show. And um, she does a great episode. So Imaginary Worlds in general is just about like geek and nerd culture. It's kind of like the best conversation uh, and deep dive on like the minutia of fantasy worlds basically um and they do a really interesting episode about the nature of video games and identity basically and Mm -hmm. like jay and a number of other people kind of experimenting with their own identities in building an avatar basically it was really awesome so way to go jay thanks that's cool yeah um well i mean just real quick my favorite podcast by far over the last like two months is the new york times the daily podcast it comes out every single day every single work day i guess it took president's day off but uh it's literally it's hosted by this guy named michael barbaro and it's literally what happened yesterday in america <laughs> um and it's just like the best it's like new york times level reporting uh and it's just so good it's like produced like any npr podcast would mm. be uh there's like music and editing and all that stuff. Um, but they like, like, I don't know if you remember like a week and a half ago, like Donald Trump sat down with the publisher of the New York times. Uh, and they were like, the daily is like who like kind of put that like report together. And it, I don't know, every single day it's like fascinating. They'll talk about the border. They'll talk about, uh, the one I heard today was about like the democratic party, how there is splitting on Israel, you know, mm-hmm. like, um, I don't know. It's just so good and it's so in depth and it seems like pretty balanced to me, but I'm kind of biased. But anyway, daily, it's my favorite podcast. And then another thing, just like a weird tip that probably most people know, but we were, <clears throat> I was shooting at Venice Boardwalk this uh, past week and we wanted to do shots of people riding their bikes and it, we didn't really have a good way to like move the camera with them and we, you know, kind of conservative budget and we only had a couple hours but we rented like a pedicab. Do you know what that is? Sure. Like the bicycle guy yeah. that, that tows like a place that two people can sit. And it was like an amazing camera car for like a That's non-street. Really funny. That's really good. Uh, so I'll post some photos. Uh, but That's awesome. it was just like, I was like, oh, this, I don't know why we don't use these pedicabs all the time. I mean, it there is like some stamina required <laughs> from the person that's pulling like pedicab (laughs) you and some anton bauer powered yeah and also (laughs) uphill like you feel the pedals (laughs) like the movement isn't but yeah pedicabs as camera cars pretty pretty good awesome cool Cool. well carrie um how can our listeners uh keep track of what you're doing and find out more about you oh 
do we really want that? No, that's a kind of a weird way I phrased it, I suppose. I mean, do you have like a do you tweet? Do I you guess have... I am technically on Twitter. Um, is the... I do I tweet occasionally, very rarely, like I'd say like three times a year. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> but I'm there <laughs> at only globally. Perfect. Okay, we'll have all of that stuff up. Normally, people have like ah, my my reel is on my website, sort of. Stuff. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, yeah, you can follow me on Twitter. <laughs> And then and then forget that you followed me, and then I and then three mm. times you're like, oh, oh, she's got a new show yeah. coming out. Cool. Like, oh, well, I want to personally apologize to everyone listening that I wasn't like more interesting. I don't know. Well, no, I just thought I seemed mean. <laughs> no, no, you get the hard truth. The hard truth oh, is no. important, though. <laughs> it's real. I promise, I'm nice. <laughs> All right. Well, if you want to find out uh, more hard truths, you can follow the show on JustShootItPod.com or on SoundCloud, Stitcher. You probably already know all of that stuff. But uh, social media, JustShootItPod, Instagram, all of that. And Instagram is getting a little bit better, which is why check it out, everybody. Uh, you can follow me at Mr. Madamo. And I'm at Smitey Pileg. Uh, this episode was produced by Madeline Rosewatt. It was edited by Jay McAuliffe. And our webmaster is Ewan Williams. The music you're listening to right now is by the artist Jazar from the Free Music Archive. That's all she wrote. I think that's it. Rate us on iTunes if um, you don't mind. Uh, Patreon. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.